Uh, we have been going through over the last few weeks, uh, been going through the life of Abraham and looking at this idea of bold faith, of bold faith. What is bold faith? What does it look like? How do we live a life of bold faith? And we've got to Genesis uh, chapter 22. So I'd love it if in your Bibles you might turn um, there at the end of the row to page 22. And uh, you will find there <coughs> uh, Genesis uh, chapter 22. Uh, let me read it. As I say, this, it's, it's quite a shocking passage, and uh, hopefully we'll get a bit to grips with what on earth is going on um, in a few moments. So Genesis 22, beginning at the first verse, says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I'll show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We'll worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it said, On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord God, we praise you that you are the great provider. That you're the great provider both for Abraham back then and for each one of us today. And Lord God, we pray now that you would provide for us. Lord, would you provide us with hearts and minds that are open, that are open to hear your word and are open to your spirit being at work in us. So Lord, please come amongst us by your spirit. Work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, many of you um, will know the very sort of helpful definition of an idol that an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that becomes more fundamental to your happiness, to your identity, to your meaning in life, anything that becomes more fundamental than God. And that means that an idol, it it can be a bad thing, but generally actually an idol is, is quite a good thing. 
It's a good thing, but the problem is this good thing, whatever it might be, this good thing has become the ultimate thing, become more ultimate than God. And so I wonder just this evening if you might just think through what for you is in danger of becoming an idol. Maybe one thing, maybe a whole number of different things. What for you is an idol? An idol can be money or competence or beauty or comfort. You know, for me, as I've been thinking about this a little bit this week, as I've been preparing for this sermon, I've realized that in some ways, idol, an idol for me is comfort. It is, I want to be comfortable, and I don't want my life to be too radical and too out there and too tricky. I long for comfort. An idol can be a passion for the success of a of a political cause or, or a social cause or even a passion for the success of the church that you're rector of. An idol can be family or career. An idol can be a person, be they real or imagined, a spouse or a hopeful spouse, a child or a hoped-for child. An idol can be anything that you spend most of your emotions, most of your thoughts, most of your time on. An idol can be your dog. An idol can be yourself. An idol can be something that dominates your bank balance. Or or it dominates your dreams. Or it dominates your Instagram feed. And for Abraham, if Abraham was in danger of having anything as an idol, it was without doubt his son Isaac. You see, everything that had been going on in Abraham's life to this point, everything, it was all going forwards to this point of the birth of Isaac, his son. Back in Genesis 12, you were here a couple of weeks ago, we saw God had promised Abraham three things. He promised him a people, a place, and a blessing. But how on earth was this people, this great nation, going to come through Abraham if he didn't actually have a child for this great nation to come through? And as we've seen, both Sarah and Abraham, they struggled with infertility. And so as the story of Abraham goes on from Genesis chapter 12 through the following chapters, as we read it, there's this mixture in Abraham and Sarah's life, this mixture of them displaying real bold faith, but also displaying blatant failing. And this mixture of bold faith and blatant failing, it goes on for years and years, indeed decades and decades. But the underlying story that is happening the whole time, the huge focus, the big focus is when, oh when, oh when will this son be born? And then in Genesis chapter 21, the chapter before I just read, finally, miraculously, Isaac is born. And you can just imagine it after the waiting and waiting and waiting, the such rejoicing when this son is finally born, this joy of a child after such a huge wait, and he is the one through whom this whole nation is going to be descended. But the question still comes. For Abraham, has Isaac become, if you like, an idol? Has Isaac, his son, become more important, more fundamental to Abraham, even than God himself? 
You know, in the, um, in the Bible, there are three ways, as you read through the Bible, there are three ways that idols are described. The first way that idols are described, they are things that we obey, that we look to obey because they control us. The second way that idols are described, they are things that we look to, to trust. We look to trust them because we get our security from them. And then the third way that idols are talked about in the Bible, they are things that we love. They're things we love because we delight in them. And these three ways that idols are described in terms of obeying, in terms of trusting, in terms of loving, all these three, they're all sort of mixed together in this outrageous challenge that God gives to Abraham at the start of our chapter. Just look at verse 2 again, would you? And just see how those three things, obey, trust, and love, how they are all mixed together in what God says to Abraham in verse 2. Verse 2, he says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now that's quite a challenge, isn't it? I mean, as you read that and you just begin to put yourself in Abraham's shoes, how on earth would you be feeling as God is asking you to sacrifice your son? Now, we don't get told of Abraham's emotional reaction. No doubt he would have had a sleepless night, his mind racing. And yet we read verse 3, that straight away, without complaint, early the next morning, he gets up with Isaac. And they walked for three days to get to this mountain in Moriah, which is the range of mountains just outside of modern-day Jerusalem. But clearly, Abraham obeys, doesn't he? We're thinking of those first of the three things, uh, that we, how we relate to idols. When it comes to obey, Abraham certainly obeys, doesn't it? He, he follows through. He's prepared to go through with it. He builds this altar. He binds Isaac on top of the altar, who I guess must have been at least 10 years old, because Isaac carries the wood for the burnt offering up the mountain. And then we read in verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And then thankfully, at the very last moment, God intervenes. So I hope you can see, I'm sure you can, that there is no problem with Abraham's obedience. But there is probably, for all of us here, a problem with Abraham being asked to do this in the first place. I mean, instinctively, it feels so wrong, doesn't it? I mean, can you and I, can we really follow a God who asks a father to kill his son? It just seems super warped, doesn't it? But what certainly I've been helped by as I've been um, preparing this talk is just above all, we need to recognize what happened in society back then regarding firstborn sons. So they lived uh, in a time where their lives, these firstborn, the firstborn son was automatically forfeited. Because every family owed a debt to God because of their sinfulness. So the firstborn was automatically forfeited, but usually they were then redeemed through the sacrifice of animals or through serving in the temple. So think of the firstborn Samuel serving in the temple. 
Or think about God with Moses in the escape from Egypt. What was that ultimate plague? It was the death of all the firstborn children. So you see, when God said that the firstborn's life belonged to him unless there was a ransom payment, God was saying as clearly as possible that every single family owed a debt for their sin. Just as we today as Christians would believe every one of us owes the debt of death for our sin. And I think that helps us to see what is going on here. Tim Keller is so helpful on this. I'm going to put up quite a long quote by him. But this is what Tim Keller writes about this. He says this. He says, if Abraham had heard a voice sounding like God's saying, get up and kill Sarah, his wife, Abraham would probably never have done it. He would have rightly assumed that he was hallucinating, for God would not ask him to do something that clearly contradicted everything he had ever said about justice and righteousness. But when God stated that Abraham's only son's life was forfeited, that was not an irrational, contradictory statement to him. Notice, God was not asking him to walk over into Isaac's tent and just murder him. No, he asked him to make Isaac a burnt offering, a sacrifice. He was calling in Abraham's debt. His son, the firstborn son, his son was going to die for the sins of the family. And so I hope that just sort of explanation, it helps you to begin to see why this is bold faith, not blind faith. Abraham was not saying, this is nuts, this is murder, but I'm just going to blindly obey anyway. Now, Abraham, he could see how this fitted in with the need for a sacrifice for sin. And so he looked to obey God. So that's obey God. We've got those three ways of relating to an idol. The first one, obeying. We're in danger of obeying idols. What about Abraham? Does he obey his idol, Isaac, or does he obey God? And we see he obeys God. Let's think about the second way to relate to idols, trust. Does Abraham trust God? Just picture for a moment Isaac growing up in those sort of first 10 years of his life. Just picture it. You can imagine Abraham, every time he he claps his eyes on his dear son Isaac, he would have just smiled in delight, wouldn't he? I mean, just this wonder and delight every time he looked on this son that he'd waited decades for. a, A visual reminder That God, when God says something, God comes through. He can trust God. God actually fulfills his promises. This visual reminder that he could trust God. And that yet here we get to Genesis 22 and suddenly this visual reminder that he can trust God, that God keeps his promises, it seems to be completely unraveling, doesn't it? Because what's God's word say? God's word says, sacrifice Isaac. And yet God's promises say it's through Isaac that you will become a great nation. And those two things, they just do not go together, do they? Sacrifice Isaac, a great nation's going to come through Isaac. How do those fit together? And yet, what we see with Abraham, he may not know the answer of how those two fit together, and yet he trusts God. I'd love you just to see a couple of examples of of Abraham trusting God. Just look at verse 5. Look at verse 5 and what he says in verse (coughs) 5. He says, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship 
and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. Somehow Abraham believes that Isaac will stay alive after the sacrifice. Or think about Isaac. Isaac's not stupid. He knows what's needed for um, a sacrifice to happen. And he says to his dad, he says, come on, dad, you've been a bit thick here. You've forgotten something. You've got the wood. You've got the fire. But what about actually the lamb to sacrifice? You've forgotten that, dad. And how does Abraham reply? Verse 8. He says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham does not have a clue how it's going to happen. But he knows that somehow God is going to work it out. And this amazing deep trust in God is what is picked up in the New Testament when the New Testament talks about Abraham. Up on the screen is going to come Hebrews 11 and verse 17 in Hebrews 11. Just talking exactly about this chapter. And this is what it says. It says, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now that's incredible trust, isn't it? Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So where Abraham, where he might have been tempted to have Isaac as his idol, Isaac taking the place of God, the reality is what we've seen is that Abraham, he obeys God, he trusts God, and then thirdly, he loves God. I mean, just look particularly at God's words to Abraham in verse 2. They're very deliberate, what God says to him in verse 2, right at the start. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. God knew that there was such love that Abraham had for his son, Isaac. And Abraham was there, and he was stuck between two loves, God and Isaac. Who do you love more? There's nothing wrong with loving Isaac, of course not. But as I said, if the good thing becomes the ultimate thing, the idol, our source of delight rather than God. Well, then there's a problem. And that's why in our series on bold faith, we have thought, if you've been here over the last three weeks, we thought about firstly, what is bold faith in week one? As we looked at Genesis 12, we said, what is bold faith? Bold faith, it is looking up to God and his word and obeying it. And it's looking forward to God and his promises and trusting them. That's what bold faith is. Then the second week, we looked at why be a person of bold faith. Why? And we thought about how our relationship with God, our contract with God, it is 0%. It is nothing to do with us. And it is 100%. It is all to do with God. God has done everything that we need to have a relationship with him. And that is why we can be people of bold faith. But today, we're not thinking about what, we're not thinking about why, but we're thinking about how. How bold faith actually looks on the ground. And what does bold faith look like? It looks like a man being prepared to sacrifice his potential idol. It looks like a man being prepared to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loves. Now, what do you and I learn from this chapter? 
What do we learn? I want to say, suggest we learn two things. And we learn two things that Abraham himself learned too. And the first thing that we learn is in the area of our love for God. For Allah for God. Let's be clear, we will not be called to literally raise a real knife and literally sacrifice a real human. Of course not. But each one of us here, we do all have our own Isaacs. Every single one of us here, in our own way, we will have our own Isaacs. The things in your life, the things in my life, that are in danger of becoming idols. The things in our lives that are in danger of usurping God's place as number one in our life. We've all got them, different things for different ones of us, but there'll be things in our lives that if we had to sacrifice them, if we had to give them up, it would break us and it would destroy us because too much of our identity, too much of our meaning, too much of who we are revolves around them. And the reality is that sometimes we don't realize that something is an idol in our life until it gets removed, until we have to sacrifice it. You know, the person who gets made redundant and suddenly their whole life falls to pieces because their career was their idol. Let me be real with you about my idols. I've obviously been thinking a little bit about this this last week as I've been preparing. What are the things that I am in danger of putting above God? As I've said, I think my idols include my comfort. I think my idols also include, like Abraham, my children. I think my idols include the success of HTC as a church and the success of me as a church leader. I remember about 10 years ago now when I was at theological college and um, my voice went hoarse. It went really completely hoarse for about three months and it didn't properly get better for, for a couple of years. And um, uh, for those of you medical around here, it was, the, the diagnosis was it was a, super, a right superior laryngeal palsy, which basically means your, your vocal cords are supposed to go like this, symmetrically, but the right one went floppy and wobbly and didn't really work properly. And uh, I, I remember vividly uh, going to the doctors to get the results of, um, I'd had one of those sort of disgusting, one of those uh, cameras up your nose and down your throat to look at your vocal cords. Anyway, uh, and I, I went to the doctors to get the results of this. Uh, and he told me what it was, and uh, I asked him, I said, um, can you tell me, is this permanent or temporary? And he said, I, I don't know, uh, but if it's permanent, your voice isn't going to get at all better. And I can remember so clearly going out of that doctor's surgery in Oxford, uh, going across the road to where Susanna was in the car, our car, and getting into the car, and just bursting into floods and floods and floods of tears. Now, of course, it's not wrong to, to burst into floods of tears, but I know what was going on in my heart and my mind at that moment. I was like, my life has fallen apart. My life has fallen apart. I thought God wanted me to be a pastor and a preacher, and I can't do that if I can't even speak. You see, I only began to realize that my success, my identity as a church leader, as a preacher, that that was becoming something of an idol to me. And I only recognized that when that thing was in danger of being removed, of having to be sacrificed by a dodgy vocal cord. 
Now, actually, as, as a few of you knew, know who are here, my, my vocal cord problem has actually come back about three weeks ago. Uh, not as badly, um, but it's why I've been coughing and spluttering a bit more. And um, uh, some of you have very kindly been praying for healing, and I believe God can heal, and I'm longing that he would heal swiftly, and thank you so much for praying. But it's been a, it's been a challenge to me and a reminder again to challenge me about this same idolatry. Am I more passionate about being a successful preacher and church leader? Or am I more passionate about Jesus? That's the challenge for me. Because you see, for all of us, in all sorts of different ways, the times in our lives that are most distressing for us, the times in our lives that are most distressing are when our idols, our Isaacs, are sacrificed or are being in danger of being sacrificed. And in those times, when there are those distressing and difficult times, we can either become broken and we can fall apart, or, like Abraham, we can walk up the mountain and be prepared for the sacrifice to happen. And be prepared, not through blind faith, but through bold faith. Faith that is setting our hearts aright. Not by loving our children less, if our children are idols. Not by loving being a church pastor less. Not by loving our career less or our comfort or whatever any of our idols might be. Not by necessarily loving them less. But by loving God more than any of those idols, those Isaacs in our life. You and I, it is learning that Jesus Christ is all that we need. That is what's key. Learning that Jesus is all that we need, whether those Isaacs in our life, whether they remain or whether they are removed from us. And so that's the first thing that I think every single one of us, certainly me, needs to grapple with to pray about, to ask God by his spirit to be working in us, our love for God. But there's also one other thing that I think we learn from this passage, and it's not so much about our love for God as about God's love for us. I wonder if you noticed what Abraham called this mountain. Just look at verse 14. He says this. (coughs) It says, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. You see, God provided for Abraham specifically with this ram to sacrifice instead of Isaac. And actually, in the next few verses, if you read on, God again, he reiterates his provision of these three things, people, place, and blessing. But you know, here is the thing for every single one of us. We cannot understand Isaac without understanding Jesus. But almost 2,000 years after this incident, God would walk his very own son up these very same hills just outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And that day, 2,000 years later, God's son would carry the wood for the sacrifice. That day, God's son would also be stretched out on that wood to die. And in many ways, for God, looking down and observing what was going on with Abraham and Isaac, it was like for God looking down and observing a dress rehearsal for himself 2,000 years later as he took his son to his death. Even down to the detail in verse 4 that it would have felt to Abraham like his son was dead for three days. 
But whilst a substitute ram was provided for Isaac, no substitute was provided for Jesus. Indeed, the true substitute for Isaac was not a ram who could never really pay the price of his sin, but the true substitute for Isaac was God's own son who died in Isaac's place, in your place, and my place at the cross. You see, Jesus Christ, he is our provision. He is our provision. He is all we need. He provides all that you and I need, and he did it at the cross. You know, the Lord, he saw Abraham's sacrifice that day and he said, I know now that you love me because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, whom you love. But how much more? How much more can you and I look at the Lord's sacrifice for us on the cross and say, now I know how much you, Lord, how much you love me because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son whom you love. And you know, HTC, that is the secret to being a person of bold faith. That is the secret. If you see yourself in Isaac, then you get it. As you look at Isaac, if you see yourself in Isaac, then you get it. Because like Isaac, you and I, we deserve death. But your sacrificial lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has been substituted for you so that you and I can go free. You can be totally, absolutely, completely, 100% sure that God loves you. And you can be sure of that. Because he has provided for you on that very same mountain. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our great provider. We thank you for for providing for each one of us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for that awesome, incredible love for each one of us. And we thank you that in a moment we can take bread and wine. That it is a visible reminder to each one of us of your love for us. Jesus, thank you that you are our sacrificial lamb, that you died for us. And Lord God, we pray for each one of us that as we take the bread and the wine, that by your spirit, you would grow our love for you our wonder at you that you have provided everything for us. Lord, thank you that you've been speaking to us by your spirit tonight and that you've been challenging us where we have things that we love and obey and trust more than you. I'm reminded of uh, St. Augustine used to speak of um, 
of having disordered loves. That our love for all sorts of different things can be disordered in the wrong order without Jesus as our number one love. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would grow our love for the Lord Jesus, for all these different loves in our lives, that they might be ordered aright in the proper place.